Radio Real. Real Radio, your reality. Welcome to Off the Shelf. The second life radio show and podcast about books and the people who love them. I'm Kegia Gerardi. And this is Simeon Beresford. Join us as we survey the literary scene in our virtual world. Welcome to Off the Shelf. Today our guest is Viv Trafalgar, whose virtual world experiences includes writing for Prim Perfect, consulting on the House of Usher project for the University of Richmond, um, founding and co-hosting the Aether Salon in New Babbage, as well as creating some wonderful Victorian-inspired clothing. Yes, I'm wearing one of her creations for the fall of the House of Usher right now. Actually, it contained two left feet when I shoes when I bought it. <laughs> oh, it was a freebie, so I'm not going to complain. Oh, I can fix that for you. <laughs> <laughs> but the indefatigable Miss Trafalgar is also busy on other virtual worlds out there developing narratives for Heritage Key and maintaining an open sim of her own. It seems a second life is not sufficient for Viv. She needs a third and a fourth. Welcome. <laughs> Well, thank you. It's an absolute pleasure and honor to be here. Um, thank you to Gabby as well for making us sound great. And uh, I, I'm very excited to uh, be talking with you today. Hi, Viv. Let's start by talking about the work you're doing with Resible these days. You were just telling me about Steamfish recently, so I got in and I started checking it out a bit. And you're working there with Bryn O and Glyph Graves? Um, actually, Bryn and Glyph have uh, regions on the Resible Alpha Grid, and you can go and see their um, installations there. They're fantastic. Uh, you need to go to the Resible.com site and create an avatar, just like you would to go to any other OpenSim grid, and then uh, you can log in using um, a, a, a number of different viewers. There's a great how-to on the site, I believe. Um, and Steamfish is a region um, there as well that was developed um, between me, uh, Ianthi Farshore, and Ordinal Malaprop wrote the game engine for that. Okay. Um, th this is a little different from your usual, or the stuff you've been doing for them recently with Heritage Key and the, the King Tuts, the uh, Stonehenge exhibits. This is much more fictional, isn't it? This is very different. The um, Resible approached me. I hadn't um, been working for them. They approached me to um, help them design an educational scenario for a, a specific client, um, Y Touring of London, which goes to high schools in, um, in the UK to teach about um, scientific topics. And they do so by staging live plays. And what they had hoped to do was leave behind a, a virtual environment as well to um, <laughs> to uh, teach the students by immersing them in a situation that would help them understand the history and the need for clinical trials and the reasons behind them as well as well as the process of them. So what we did was we created a steampunk airship. We crashed it on an island. Um, there were lots of clockwork animals set loose from the crash. There's a one of the um, animals is a, a clockwork dodo, which you can see in the the um, the room here. The uh, Peacock really likes that dodo, which is I'm very glad to see. <laughs> but um, what the, what the hope was was that the students in playing the game would be um, experiencing what it was like to um, go through the 1748 Lind Scurvy trial, which was the first uh, fair test or clinical trial at sea. Um, and we did this on purpose so that they would. Um, 
have to go during the course of trying to rescue themselves, gathering equipment to um, enact the rescue and solving some puzzles along the way. Um, they had to go and visit the doctor every time they um, exhibited scurvy symptoms. And Ordinal created a, a way that their, their avatars would actually sort of um, fall faint from scurvy or feel ill or dizzy, and they'd have to report their symptoms and then get one of the six treatments. So it was it was an excellent way to um, teach kids about science and about medical uh, issues by immersing them in a game. So were you um, one of the writers of the scripting of the game as well as one of the builders? We we built the region. It was it was a team of three. It was a very efficient. Um, operation from start to finish. We had a lot of help from um, the, the Lind Library in England, as well as Y-Touring. Um, and we had some of the Y-Touring actors who actually um, were happy to overdub some of the script of the fictional script. But we designed the entire thing from um, the, the fantastic mermaid on the boat, by the way, is one of Jasper Kiergarten's sculpts. So if you get a chance to see it, that's, that's his. Um, but the the story of Steamfish, how the the crash came about, the backstory behind it, all of the quest questions, all of the scripting, everything was done by us, um, and it, and we had about six weeks, six to eight weeks to do it. That's amazing. It's, it's where, pretty cool. Um, where can people find out about it if they're not already in the Resible Grids? You can um, find out about it a couple of different ways. There's a great article in um, the Primgraph magazine, the Pirates um, Primgraph magazine. It actually tells you how to get there as well. So definitely get a copy of, of the Primgraph and um, read the article and uh, you can do that. The other way to do it, let me call up the uh, URL, is um, to go to heritage key steamfish i think but i'm going to get the the right address before it's it's steamfish s-t-e-a-m-f-i-s-h dot heritage key dot heritage dash key dot net and i'll copy that into the chat in world as well okay but that has a little uh machinima in it as well as um sort of directions for how to play and uh, also resources for the teachers who were going to use the game and you've made sure everybody looks very stylish as they go through the, their scurvy, their, their battle with scurvy. Yes, yeah, the clothes were a blast to, to design and work on. And um, I think what's neat is that they were able to be carried over and they're part of the um, free clothes available to avatars registering at heritagekey.com as well. Um, so if you're going to explore the historical areas of Heritage Key, um, you get some great steampunk clothing to start you off. And steampunk's pretty familiar ground to you, considering you spend a lot of time in the steamlands of Second Life. Uh, one of your most successful ventures there are the, is the Aether Salon. How did the salon come about? Um, I think it, it came about in two ways. One is that I was talking with um, people in New Babbage about how to... Um, create, thanks Hyacinth, um, how to create a, a place where people would come and discuss issues and um, have sort of a, a space for that in New Babbage. And the reason it, it happened and it worked and it's been working for a year and a half now, We've, we're on our 18th, um, our 18th uh, salon next next June, in June, um, is because the Steamlands and Second Life are filled with some really brilliant, witty, creative minds. And the fact that we feature a topic each time and keep to it despite all efforts to digress, um, we also ban weapons within Salon, so anyone who has an explodey um, thing going on has to leave it at the door, usually. Um, the so, other thing is that nobody takes themselves too seriously, so we have a lot of fun, and we're able to so showcase the knowledge that's there in the Steamlands. And a major goal of the salon from the start was to be a place where the community could educate itself based on the knowledge of community members. So we've had everything from a great philosophical discussion on villainy to Victorian submersible design and disasters to corsets, men's fashion, the history of uh, Victorian 
Victorian exhibitions, music boxes, which are my personal favorite. Um, and just this past month, an absolutely amazing discussion of Victorian and neo-Victorian music from Miss Riel herself. Um, and next month, we have Mr. PJ Trenton discussing photography, which is going to be our last salon um, before we go on summer break. Um, if I can plug a little bit. Please plug. <laughs> <laughs> we, meet, uh, we meet the third Sunday of every month at 2 p.m. in Babbage, New Babbage Palisades and Academy. And, uh, of course, you know, above all else, the main reasons why the salon is so successful is because we have a great audience every time. Um, there are a lot of people who put their heart and soul into making each salon work each month. Serafina Puchkina, who has been my co-host since we started and who has just the only reason why I'm still, still, um, you know, walking a straight line come Salon Day. Um, Jed Dagger and Jasper Kiergarten, as well as our amazing speakers, are always just the the they make the show. I just sort of provide the setting and and natter about a little bit, but everybody who's there makes the show. And I've already apologized to Gabby, but I'm going to do it again. Getting up on stage is not easy, <laughs> but it is a really fantastic gift to be able to give back to the community. I love that. It's just such a 19th century concept that has worked so well in this environment. The salons are always packed. They're one of those events that you just have to strip down all your prims because you'll never, ever move if you don't. <laughs> and the conversations and the, the crowd, the audience is just as amusing as and, and entertaining as the guests are. I love coming to your salons. It's, it's one of those things that, you know, from the start, people have been, we have these chairs that, that Cannoli Capilani made for us um, that are wearable chairs. So they don't add prims to the sim and yet everybody can sit there and be very dignified and, you know, witty at the same time. And, um, and look fabulous in their Aether Salon chairs. And we we have the most amazing time. It can go on for hours. It doesn't always. Sometimes it's it's very, you know, we, we end right at the hour and we're very proper and we have tea and celebrate our properness. But often, you know, we'll be looking at the clocks and it'll be two hours in and, and then somebody will, you know, say something off topic and we'll be off to the races again and it's you can uh, go to the Aether Salon website and see all of the transcripts both edited and not edited Um, and the reason we put both up is so that everyone can see exactly what was said as well as um, what is more easily easily readable Um, and Serafina does the most amazing job getting the the pages and pages and pages of transcript down to something that will fit on the blog each each month but all um, 18 episodes of the salon are on record there and you can read back and read all of the witty sayings Um, we also keep a list of of our favorite comments um, along the side of the front page of the salon it's a great way to actually use your website to do more than just announce what's going on it's wonderful so, Buster Heritage Key. Yeah. I'd like to see something based on Ghost Map, the book about the Victorian work on, co- on cholera epidem- epidemiology. Why do I write these big words? <laughs> you mean as a follow-up to Steamfish? Yeah. Um, I think that would be a, a really interesting follow-up to Steamfish. Um, I love Stephen Johnson's book, and I think that, um, you know, the fact that they used information design to tr- not that they called it that at the time, but they, they made a map of where all the episodes of cholera were taking place and were able to trace that map back to the source of cholera when everybody in the world was telling them that it was airborne was amazing. It was a, a really great step in the right direction for how information is shared between people. Yes, if you haven't read The Ghost Map, I <laughs> highly recommend it to folks. It's I should a have given non- a spoiler alert <laughs> before I said that. Um, it's a work of nonfiction that reads very much like fiction. It's got lots of excitement and um, a little bit of, you know, ew factor. But <laughs> Yeah, there are, there are a few points where you're like, I'm, I'm reading CSI. This is <laughs> awful. But 
Yeah. So um, definitely rec we recommend reading that book, by the way. Yeah, so are they going to let you do it or have they got you working on something else? Right now I am um, tasked with a couple of big projects that I need to finish. Um, I have been working in the Egyptian areas of Heritage Key. And if you want to know more about that, I'm going to um, type the URL into the window. Um, but the Heritage Key is... Um, is, is a project by um, the same group that does Resble.com that is a, an, an archaeological community um, that has vast resources online. People um, write articles, post pictures, comment back to each other and have developed this really amazing community of archaeologists and archaeological fanatics. Um, and to complement that, um, we've built... Uh, 3D simulations of World Heritage Sites as sort of a destination grid. It, again, um, now is not on Second Life. They were for a while on Second Life, but um, after the um, King Tut exhibit here, they moved to an open sim region. Um, and if you would like to visit, you can go to heritage-key.com heritage and create your own avatar and jump in world and visit the Valley of the Kings. Um, you can go to 1350s BCE Amarna, which is when um, King Tut was just a boy and Akhenaten was the pharaoh. You can visit the Golden Mask and all the treasures recovered from King Tut's tomb. Um, but that's just the start of of it. You can see terracotta warriors in their original paints or the, what the paints um, might have looked like. There are opportunities to um, test your knowledge against all sorts of um, quests and challenges throughout the regions. And as well, there's um, a fantastic exhibit of Stonehenge across the centuries. So you can see Stonehenge as it's being built and meet some of the characters that helped to build it. Um, which is really fantastic. I like that um, it's appropriate enough that I can bring my nieces in to see the builds there as well. Absolutely. Um, this is a destination grid. This is a grid that is geared towards, um, you know, people who who want to discover something or visit something that they might not be able to get to as easily. But also, um, you know, if you want to take uh, your kids in or students or, or um, show people around, this is an open sim grid and um, you can do that. And the, the content is geared towards, um, you know, being educational and fun. There's a great, uh, there, there are a couple of great uh, quizzes that you can take or challenge yourself to. You can try and decode the, the tomb wall in King Tut's tomb. And if you do, you get a fantastic Anubis mask that was made by Mai McKenzie. Um, you, you can uh, test your skills on a river raft in the Nile against a friend or um, against the river gods. Ianthi Farshore designed this. Um, raft game and it's basically just you're just trying to push your competitors off um, it's fantastic there uh, there are lots of um, characters within the Amarna region on the Nile who will come up and ask you if you belong in the house and you had best know your history if you want to not end up in the garden pond because they'll toss you there if you don't um, if you don't know who the pharaoh is mm-hmm so you've had a lot of fun really working on these. <laughs> <laughs> I have I have learned so much. Um, there are an incredibly talented group of people working for Resible. And um, there are so there's so much information available to be able to do what we've done there. Um, I, I have to give a, a shout out to um, Little Toe Bartlett and Pavic Locke, um, to Ordinal Malaprop, to Foolish Frost, and I don't even know if they're listening, but um, and to John John Himoff, who's who's pushed the project forward and made it possible, and also to Ianthi Farshore and J Jasper Kiergarten, who have helped me with the projects that I've been working on. Um, it's been fantastic to work with everyone. Um, Were you and a I big? I feel very lucky. <laughs> Were you a big um, fan, a big Egypt buff, Egyptologist buff before um, you started, or a big history buff before you started these projects? 
You know, I, I've learned a lot more about archaeology since I've started there. Um, the, the, the human resources, the people who are available to um, help with information at Heritage Key, um, everyone from Zahi Hawass, who is with um, the, the, who's the, the major um, touch archaeologist and, and, you know, expert in Egypt, um, there, Sandro Vanini, who's taken these amazing photos in Egypt, and they're available on heritagekey.com, um, is just being able to, to, to be near those artifacts and that information has, has made me, I think, much smarter um, along the way. But um, I, I have... I have always collected myths and legends ever since I was in grade school. Um, Egyptian myths, Greek myths, Roman myths, Japanese myths, um, and I, I still do. Um, whenever we go on a trip, I collect the the myths and legends of the of the country that I'm in, and it's really hard to. Um, miss history when you do that. You get a lot of history immersion just by the stories that people have told about their pasts, um, and you know that that helps. Um, at least it helps me look like I know what I'm doing when I'm standing around all these really smart people. Well, you know, and that's the important thing. It's all about the appearance. Right? It is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's obvious that you've got a very clear sense of where education is going in virtual worlds, or at least where you'd like to see it go. How do you see, um, how do you see that working? Are virtual worlds a wave of the future? Are they a trend for now? I think I think they are a trend for now, and I think that um, it, when the the rest of the world catches up with with three D and and they're able to get to it easily, because there is still the problem that um, you know you have to take a couple of extra steps in order to come into a three D space, but that's kind of the same thing when you you know we were encouraging everyone to go to web pages and no one knew what we were talking about in the you know mid 90s even you were trying to convince people to move off of print and onto web the same sort of shift is happening now and i think that virtual worlds are a fantastic fit for education um they allow opportunities for um people to engage with history by walking through it. They allow teachers to make lesson plans come to life and to enable students to experience um, history in a more, and not just history, but chemistry and literature in a more dramatic way. Um, and even to see uh, how particular events might be changed by different behaviors. We were talking before um, the the session started about how you can do different iterations of a course of study using a virtual environment and it doesn't it doesn't really cost you the same as it would cost you if you were doing a real real life um, trial of something and the last thing is that it can give people it, it it sort of frees people from dependence on geolocation which is important both for work and for education um, people who live in remote areas, um, whether they're in the mountains of Colorado or out in Australia or in the middle of Europe, it, if they can't really get to the Valley of the Kings, um, you know, or to Stonehenge very easily, they can go online and visit these places and, and take a class in the Valley of the Kings. And I think that's a great opportunity for um, educators to, the, to take advantage of. Yes. Um so tell us about the House of Usher project. Oh, the House of Usher project was a great thing. Um, I got to do this spring thanks to Ignatius Onomatopoeia of uh, the University of Richmond. He, um, he and his team have built built the House of Usher, this huge build with, you know, catacombs and um, lots of spooky rooms and um, very dour overtones to it. And there's a there's a, a, a moat with steam rising and, and it's dark and dreary, as you would expect. Um, and at one point they wanted it to collapse. And so they called me in to talk about how, you know, how you do some demolition of this scale. And the conversation moved from there to um, sort of how to to look at what what their goal was was to study the impact of live role play on literary study, and um, they wanted they wanted 
to talk about how we could push the, the boundaries of that. And I've worked with Iggy a couple of, a couple of times on different projects, and he sort of asked me to swing by and, and, and let me run my mouth a little bit on the topic. And the result was um, a great opportunity, I think, to, to create a moment where students could come in, work with um, scheduled actors. They, they brought in people who played the, the main roles and the students interacted with the role players. Um, I got to play Madeline a couple of times during the reenactments and I also helped with the, the preparations on the, the reenactments as well as the build and the clothes. And um, we learned a lot about what the students needed in order to feel supported when they came in so that they could achieve their goal. Um, Iggy and I presented on that at uh, Virtual Worlds Best Practices in Education this spring. And um, I think the slides are available um, through that through the website. But um, mostly it was just a great opportunity to interact with students and to see how they experienced coming into a literary build and how they got into character or didn't in a couple of very notable cases. <laughs> I, think so it's, I think it's quite interesting that... Um, the relationship between role play and uh, literary and literature is so close nowadays. It's a great opportunity to sort of re-examine things. Um, I, I think, you know, to encourage students to, to do a literary role play, they really have to know the, the part of the character and the time period. And um, they, they sort of have to prepare in a much deeper way if they don't want to look, you know, silly. <laughs> So, and because Poe's been such a popular figure in Second Life, the role play gave you perhaps a different way of handling it in this world, or did you feel like you handled it differently in other ways as well? Well, I, University of Richmond really drove that, and um, anyone who's met uh, Ignatius Anapaya knows that he's he's a he's a character, and he has a vision um, for how to involve literature and virtual worlds um one of the things that was that they were able to do that they might not have been able to do in a typical classroom environment was they gave the students a goal before they began the role play um this allowed the students to focus on something besides you know hello i'm in a virtual space what do i do with my hands where do i do you know where do i put my feet um they had this this goal to um try and rescue Madeline from her fate. And there were clues embedded all over the house and objects for how they might help Madeline get out of the house alive. And the, there were a number of students who, um, while remaining in character, really got involved in um, how they might alter the story. And that's, a, that's, that's kind of um, an interesting approach. I know it will provoke a lot of discussion. It already has in some quarters, but the results were that the students were, were had a lot to say on the subject later, and that means that they were paying really attention. Understand the structure of the of a of a story before you can alter it. Yes, exactly. That's you. You. Um, Ezra, one of my favorite quotes is sort of a, a, a bastardized version of an Ezra Pound comment that you need a, you need um, a constant and a variant to um, create something, to create a great work of art. And, um, so I talk about you need friction to make a spark. You need something to strike and something to strike it against. Yes. You, you need the rules to play on. Yeah, that's a really highfalutin comment. <laughs> Let's go back to looking good. And, uh... <laughs> <laughs> well, well, actually, let's go, to, um, let's go to our music break. Gabby, play it.
That was Something Doing from Professor, Professor Armchair on the Magnitude label. For more information, visit magnitude.com. Okay, Viv, I have to admit, the project of yours that I'm most fond of is the Literary Walks published in Prim Perfect. And it's probably a little egotistical, but how did you come up with the idea for the walks? It, it's actually one of my favorite projects as well. Um, I, I love listening to you guys talk about literature. Um, the, the, for, the, for the audience, um, at some point in, I don't know, We've we've done six of them, so that means last summer I approached Safia Witterstrands, who's the um, editor in chief of both Primgraph and Prim Perfect, and said, "You know what? I'd really like to do. I'd like to do something that sort of insidiously weaves weaves literature into um, a walks around different sims, so that people can see that there is." Um, that there can be literature everywhere and as well um, they they can see that they don't necessarily have to limit themselves to one thing at a time we can we could do sort of mashups between you know great sims and great builds and great literature and who better that to promote that than the two librarians of the Caledon library JJ Drinkwater and Kikia Girardi so um, I thought well I'll go catch them and and see if they'd be willing to to do this and to my great delight they were very happy to oblige me once and then possibly to their great surprise I started dragging them back again and we've had we We've had a hilarious time. It's been um, a lot of fun to go from sim to sim. And I think at one point we had some fans following us. <laughs> Wasn't that when we did the um, the the February uh, Valentine's? We had yes. a couple of people following us. It's it's pretty cool. Um, and that your literary knowledge and JJ's literary knowledge is just fantastic. We get great quotes from great authors. And I mean, what what's your favorite sim bin? Um, oh, actually, I like the one that we did, the Lovecraft Sim. Oh, the Arkham Sim. Yeah, that mm -hmm. was great. Yeah, That's, I did like that. Well, and your hair there and, and your whole outfit was great. <laughs> Gives me an excuse to go shopping, and that's really why I like it. No, no. <laughs> no I mean, part of, part of the, my favorite thing about the, the literary walks is that I get to tag along and sort of be the, the human recording device for that. And you guys are, are always so brilliant that it's, it's perfect. I just sort of, every once in a while, I can't quite sit on my hands and keep quiet, but most of the time I get to hide behind my tree branch and, and my, my trusty professional photographer, PJ Trenton, gets to come with me. And we, we really enjoy um, just being in the, in the shadow of, of brilliant comments and wit. Well, JJ and I have a good time, so it's basically conversations that we'd have anyway. It just... <laughs> It just is nice to be able to spread your wings a little and try some different environments. So it's fun. Yeah. The last one we did, if you folks haven't read it, was at um, a blue sim. And we talked about... Junkyard Lang Blues. Yes. And we yes. talked about Langston Hughes, who's one of my favorite poets. Yes. That was a great conversation. Um, the, the one in West of Ireland where we talked about Yeats was, uh, I think, probably one of my favorites. But You're we all know that. <laughs> I, have, I have a Yeats problem. I have a, a worse Gerard Manley Hopkins problem, but I don't think that we'll be going to any um, Jesuit monasteries anytime soon. I don't know if there's a Jesuit monastery build out there. Let me know and we can do a literary walk there. Cause you know, I wouldn't be surprised to find one. I know there's a very nice monastery called Alpine. Oh, but um, anyway, <laughs> we're going off topic again. <laughs> I'm making notes for... <laughs> But, um, yeah, <laughs> we're getting comments from Gabby at the moment as well. Wouldn't that be great, though? I just, I, I getting off topic, but Hopkins is, is one of those poets that has the ability to sort of pull you into his, his mindset in a way that I think he, he probably would have really liked, um, the, the 3D world in, in a lot of ways because it's so visual and it's so um, sensory and that's mm -hmm. what his poems remind me of. See, I can see, for me it's the romantics and definitely Byron. Yeah. And to some extent, <laughs> Keats. 
I wonder what kind of prim hair Byron would have. Oh, I can imagine. <laughs> All over. Yeah, I, I can see it already. Um, Coleridge would imagine that he's actually in some kind of drug-induced haze. <laughs> I have that in my inventory. Somebody gave me something that's very colorful and spins around you. <laughs> it, was my, it was my first week. It's not my fault. <laughs> <laughs> and you've kept it all this time, though. I, oh, I, that's Viv's great hidden secret is that, you know, I'm, I'm really, really structurally organized when it comes to files and work things and everything else. My inventory is a horror. I don't know how to deal with it. I just look at it and I go, okay, today I will face my inventory. And it's, it's, it's awful. Unless it's for a build project and then it's all very well organized. But with, when it comes to my shoes and things people have given me as gifts... I can find it, but it's just because I know what to type. <laughs> How did you end up in Second Life anyway, Bev? Oh, um, long story. <laughs> and um, it was it was something that I had tried long ago because uh, I had I had some friends in a couple of uh, chat rooms and uh, through Lambda Moo who had moved over here. They thought it was a fascinating environment. So I'd, I'd poked my nose in um, and I hadn't gotten very far into it. Um, and I'd gotten pulled back into the classes that I was teaching at the time, which were mostly... Um, sort of database JavaScript and um, ActionScript classes, uh, which is, I know it sounds very odd for a poet to be teaching that sort of stuff, but they let me do it, so I did. Um, but then I came to a point in time where I had some time to to spend poking around and investigating, and a friend invited me to, to come in again um, and uh, took me to the Mexico build, the one with the pyramids, and... Mm-hmm. Um, she left me there for, and said she'd be back in a couple of months and for, you know, just, just to check it out. And she dared me to, to, to see what I could find out. And I realized then that it was, it was the kind of place where I could be a storyteller and a writer. I could be a graphic designer and I could be a programmer. And all of my, my um, working life, people have told me that I've had to, I have to choose and this is the first place I really haven't had to choose. And I love that. Um, so I spent my first five or six months hanging out at the, um, the Tower of Primitives. Um, and I also um, was lucky enough somebody gave me some space to build. Um, so I, that I've been building pretty much since the beginning um, and trying different things out and learning um, LSL, which is close enough to some of the languages that I know to be... Um, Uptakeable, but it was also close enough to some of the languages I know to cause me enough difficulty. You know, when you <laughs> you learn Spanish and French at the same time, and you end up with something that is this nothing close to what you were going for, sort of like that. Oh, but I'm glad. I'm I'm so very glad I, I came in. I, I actually uh, turned two a couple of months ago, and uh, it was uh, it was kind of surprised me. <laughs> but you're only two. <laughs> I'm only two. <laughs> yes. Yes, in real life as well. I'm incredibly young in real life. <laughs> I'm not surprised. Yeah. <laughs> You're barely legal on the grid, aren't you? I, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But it's, I think what's, what's happening now with people branching out and trying different grids all over the place from reaction grid to open some grid to um, third rock grid, which is really very cool. Um, to heritage key and resible grid there's there's um uh, uh there's a, a a number of options out there to um sort of step outside of what we have learned to experience as the virtual world but we can also come back here so it's it's becoming very um diversified in some ways but it's also a lot of the things that I first fell in love with when I when I came here um, are still here the people are still here and the community is still here and I think that's an absolutely vital thing (laughs) and what is one of your favorite favorite (laughs) places to visit oh um Gosh, in in Second Life or mm-hmm. um, in Second Life, you know the last um, the last six or seven months I've been mostly locked building, but um, mm-hmm. there there are a couple of 
um, sims that I, I go to, um, AM radio sims are some of my favorites to visit. Um, the Bogon Flux will always, always have a, a huge space in my heart. Um, of course, the community of New Toulouse, which is just um, a glorious space if you love um, the, the Deep South, as I do, and, uh, <laughs> and, and great music. You should absolutely go there. Mm -hmm. But my first home, and um, it will probably always be the home of my heart, is New Babbage. Right. Can I get a word in? Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, I'm Jen. having a good conversation. I don't know about you. <laughs> I was going to ask about the prim graph. Uh, whenever I read the literary walks, I always think, these are nice, but why aren't they in the prim graph? Don't you think they'd be better suited there? Oh, no, they absolutely belong in, in Prim Perfect because if, I mean, the, the Caledon Library is is so well known to the steampunk community as a, as a fantastic resource and, and you know, place to, I, I dare say, see and be seen. But um, it's it's really sort of reaching out. Yeah, it's a, it's a cultured place and it's, it's a hub. But reaching out to the Prim Perfect readership and taking the librarians out of that steampunk era, that was one of the most hilarious things about the Junkyard Blues Walk is JJ kept going and looking at this um, this soda machine. And you know, there's no soda machines in Caledon. <laughs> there's nothing like that. So just seeing them outside of their, their normal environs and, and seeing the environment with something from a different period in it, I think really illuminates so many different things. Um, the Primgraph itself is, is a stunning magazine about steampunk and Victorian um, regions and sims as well as issues. Um, there's a wonderful column on manners written every month. There's a um, Anakin Lowey writes that. She's uh, she's hilarious. She's she's just brilliant. Um, the, Kembry Thompson writes a great column on fashion and um, I, I was lucky enough to come on staff because Kembry was um, on vacation for a, a month and they needed a, a fashion article written um, so I, I got to um, exercise my my um, my literary tendency that way by writing about fashion, which was which was great fun because there's so many really excellent fashion designers in steampunk and in Victorian sims. Um, but I also started with them writing a, an article on how to attend salon. So it sort of all comes around back to salon at one point or another. So, uh <laughs> it says here that I should be asking you to choose your next major literary project. <laughs> I have a suspicion that it'll be Gerald Manley Hopkins. Oh gosh, um, I I would love to. Who's that. rubbish, by the way? I can't He's not it. rubbish. She's just, How dare you? It's just pure artifice from beginning <laughs> to end. <laughs> oh God. Now Yates, I can understand, but Gerald well, Manley Hopkins. God. I, I think what I love about Hopkins is his, his ability to um, use repetition to change the meaning of words. And um, I think you can do that with images and with um, builds and, and um, interaction as well, that you can sort of shift meaning by repetition. Some of my favorite poems are villanelles and sistinas and um, things that use words over and over again to change their meanings. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, and you know, Yeats does a little bit of that too. He he can go off on a on a tangent um, and get word obsessed. And Hughes does that all the time. Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm thinking about uh, Elizabeth Bishop's uh, villanelle one art, which uh, I used to be able to quote the whole thing. But it starts off with uh, the the art of losing isn't hard to master. So many things seem filled with the intent to be lost that their loss is no disaster. And the rest of the poem is this, uh, you know, categorical how to go about losing everything in your life. And she literally, the, the poem just flies apart at the end um, in this great gasp of loss. And it's one of those poems that sort of, uh, you, you get to the end of it and you go, wow, that's, that's amazing that she made you feel that just by using words. There's something in the air because I was just rereading that a couple of days ago. 
Yeah, that's just uh, an amazing piece of work. It is. It's that would be a, a you know. I'd love to actually, I've, I've been thinking a lot about kind of literary projects I do, and there are about five. Um, and some of them involve um, literature and art together, um, but all sort of involve mapping relationships between different things, kind of like the ghost map that you brought up earlier, but hopefully with um, less dying. And- <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that sounds good. Less sex. <laughs> <Stay from> that. <laughs> Those people with their demands of life. <laughs> oh, Viv, what are you reading at the moment, if I dare ask? Um, I, I'm reading a couple of uh, technical manuals and a coding guide that it will bore people to death. Um, but I just finished River of Gods by Ian MacDonald. And uh, that is, it, it's, 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 you kind of have to read it. That or I'm I'm dying to read Wind Up Girl, um, which is also Ian McDonald. But um, River of Gods is is uh, after the the AIs have sort of become our helpers, and and it's it's forecasting sci-fi. It's not you know we're not on the spaceships yet, but um, it's written with a, a real sense of humor, and it's based in India, so you've got cricket you've got soap operas you've got government and water wars going on and all of it is wrapped up in this sort of moment where human computer interaction really takes a couple of shocking turns and i'm also patiently very patiently waiting for the new china melville book to come out which it should on i think june 23rd if amazon is telling me correctly I need to go and and check because um, all I know in my brain right now, because I'm I'm trying to stay calm, is that it's coming. And so I have sort of blocked what it actually is. Um, We'll let you off. Oh, thank you. (laughs) Thank you very much. Um, But now I'm using my Google Foo and I'm actually uh, looking it up. So you'll get it in a second. I'm sorry, I've ever read any China Mel, though. Oh, um, please do. It's the new one. How could I forget this? Wow. Yeah, this is what happens to my brain. It just sort of goes to pot. But the new one's called Kraken. Oh. Um, China Melville wrote uh, the, the, um, the Scar, but, which um, is... I was first introduced to China Melville f- by... Um, Dread Pirate Bob Streeter in Second Life and he said you have to read this and I couldn't put it down and then I went on to read Iron Castle I, Iron Iron Council and Perdido Street Station and those were exceptional books um, then The City in the City came out which is a very different kind of novel it's sort of um, Italo Calvino meets oh um Milorad Pavic do you remember Milorad Pavic he wrote uh, The Dictionary of the Khazars Oh yeah, and and that's what. Oh gosh, that's dictionary. The Khazars is this fascinating um, dictionary written for its three sections, three different religions. Correct correct me if I'm wrong, Simon, Um, but it's the the words that are defined in each religion section are slightly different, and it tells a story through the definition of terms. It's a hyper. It's it's the. It was written in 1995. I think, and it should have been a web novel, but it wasn't because the technology wasn't there. I can, I can, I can vaguely remember at the time, but <laughs> that's just it. Just a word from the past. It has to be earlier than ninety-five. It has to be eighty-five. Yeah, so. yeah I'm sure it was actually. <laughs> Definitely was something I'm going to look up because I love Italio Cabino. So. Yeah. All right. Well, we have been at this for more than half an hour today. Viv has been just an absolutely wonderful guest, and I've enjoyed putting the spotlight on you. Well, and I thank everybody for their patience. <laughs> <laughs> and we, we look forward to seeing your next project, whichever virtual world it happens to be on. Yeah, we've got we've got some exciting things coming out at Heritage Key, and I encourage everybody to come and visit. Um, a couple of uh, builders and I have some um, interesting things coming out in SL as well in the next couple of months. So, stand by. We will. We will. 
Okay. And also don't forget to get your prim graph and your prim perfect and do your best to read them in new Toulouse. <laughs> you're now listening to Radio Real and then come to Salon and talk about it. You can read them in Arwen if you prefer. Or you can read them in Arwen, absolutely. In fact, you could rent one of our cottages. <laughs> 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 they are putting a very blatant plug. But it's time to say goodbye now. <laughs> goodbye. <laughs> Off the Shelf is produced for Radio Real by Kegia Garardi and Simeon Beresford. Technical production is by Radio Real. You can find Radio Real on the web at radioreal.org. Music on this program includes works by artists on the Magnatune label. The music in the general introduction is John Playford's All in a Garden Green by Eileen Hadidian and Natalie Cox from their album Dolce Musica, A Contemplative Journey. The off-the-shelf theme music is 1,500 Tons by Burning Babylon from the album Stereo Mashup. And we bid you goodbye with this piece, Hagagasan 14 by Eternal Jazz Project from their album Gratis Jazz. You can learn more about Magnatune and their artists on their website at magnatune.com. Off the Shelf is licensed under Creative Commons. <laughs>